Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On a rocky cliffside in East Angola, a small army is cornered. On either side, the enemy is gathered. Below them is a deep gully, razor-sharp rocks at its base. Above them was sheer cliff face. There was no escape. They were trapped. The Portuguese had crossed ravines and forded rivers to get there. They were tired and had lost many men to the elements and were eager to finish off their quarry. The Angolan army was a few hundred strong and at its centre was a tall, proud woman in her mid-fifties. She was calm, coolly assessing the situation, but she must have known she was in deep trouble. She was outnumbered and outgunned, and though she had beaten the odds so many times before, surely she couldn't get away this time. Suddenly, five men from the Inayami rushed forward. They reached the edge of the pass, lost their footing, and tumbled down into the ravine their screams echoing and fading as they fell to their deaths. Their comrades, however, kept their heads and slowly advanced, closing the pincer. The Angolans closed ranks, forming two tight walls on either side of their queen, telling their enemies that they would have to cut down every one of them if they were to get to her. A gasp echoed around the ravine. One of the soldiers pointed in astonishment. The Angolan queen had jumped off the ledge, grabbed a vine on the way down, and was climbing down to the bottom. This was incredible. She was a woman in her fifties, near the end of an average lifespan at that time. And here she was clambering down a cliff edge, trusting her life to a simple vine. Next, the men around her followed suit, while those in the front ranks held off the enemy. In the end, around half of them made it down, The others died where they stood, giving their comrades time to escape. When the Portuguese later captured some of the men who had made it down, they asked why they had risked their lives for this woman and let their comrades die for them. And Jinga was their queen, they said. Where she went, they would follow. And where she died, they would die as well.
Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 3.13, Njinga, Life on the Run. Last time, we introduced the world of West Central Africa in the early 17th century. European invaders and colonisers ruthlessly sought to establish overlordship over the native kingdoms, including that of Ndongo, the homeland of Princess Njinga. The most intelligent, cunning and fierce of her generation, she rose to become her father's favourite. But when her brother became king, he killed her son, sterilised her and exiled her away, only to have to call her back to save his kingdom from the Portuguese. Her legendary negotiation with the Portuguese governor in Luanda re-established her as a key power broker in the kingdom. And when her brother died a few years later, she was in prime position to become Ndongo's first ruling queen. However, as we shall see in this episode, the route to power for women is rarely obstacle-free. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. I would also like to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. We post lots of extra stuff about the show, including paintings, maps, and photos, which I think gives extra richness to the story. Just search for the show on those sites and you'll find it. Okay, let's get going. To all my new listeners, Welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Ndongo had never had a female ruler before, and so Njinga knew that even with her late brother's endorsement, she had her work cut out if she was to secure herself as queen. She moved quickly, immediately seizing all of the relics and regalia of royalty, and got herself formally elected as queen. The next thing she did was to get married. She had only one man in mind, Kasa, a leader of the Mbangala. Now, he had as his ward her nephew, the seven-year-old son of the late king. And he had, well, let's say an inkling that she might have had an ulterior motive in this marriage. But, apparently, Njinga was a very beautiful and very persuasive woman and talked him into it. However, Njinga took the boy at the ceremony and had him killed, throwing him in the river and declaring that now she had finally avenged her son. Remember, her brother had killed Njinga's son when he took the throne. Now, you may have thought that this would have put somewhat of a a stain on the family wedding. After all, all her family were there, and they had seen her murder a young child on the altar of her ambition. Well, she wasn't done there. She went on a killing spree, taking out anyone she could find that she saw as potential challenge. But not everyone had been dumb enough to come into her sights at that wedding, and this murderous rampage put them on notice. Her chief rival was Harry Akiluanji, a member of a rival royal line and a powerful warlord. 
He knew his best chance to gain power was to win over the Portuguese and use them to gain his throne. Now, the Portuguese were not overly fond of Njinga, as she was refusing to pay tribute to the governor in Luanda, emboldening other Mabundu to do the same. She also refused to return runaway slaves to Portuguese-held territory and encouraged more to cross lines and join her kingdom. This was causing a great swell of popular support for Njinga, but royally ticked off the Portuguese, who threw their weight behind Hari. Unfortunately for him, Hari then promptly died of smallpox, so the Portuguese had to find a new candidate. The man they settled on was Hari's half-brother, who was also called Hari, which is convenient. Njinga did all she could to use diplomacy to resolve the dispute. But Governor D'Souza was determined to increase his power over Ndongo and fill the slave ships with even more captives. This, unsurprisingly, led to war breaking out between the two in 1626, a war that would last for decades. The Portuguese attack was well organised, and while Njinga's troops fought bravely, there was nothing they could do to stop the much better armed and equipped Europeans under the experienced leadership of General Bento Cardoso. Within a few months, they had reached Njinga's fortress on the Kindong. She was well dug in there, with trenches in position and her best men stationed in the strongholds. But it wasn't enough, and soon they were overrun. Njinga, though, was not a woman who knew when she was beaten and so hatched a daring plan to escape. She distracted Cardoso by offering to free some captives, and, under the cover of night, slipped through enemy lines undetected, burning boats behind her to ensure she wasn't followed. This was one of the narrowest escapes of her life, but while she still had her freedom, her army had been all but destroyed. She could no longer try and take the Portuguese on in sieges and pitched battles, she would have to resort to guerrilla tactics. So, she fled to the east of the country, which was still outside of Portugal control, and went underground. Despite the setback, Njinga still had some advantages. The first was the Portuguese candidate for king of Ndongo. Hari may have been the half-brother of a noble lord, but he was also the son of a slave, and that muddied the waters somewhat. There were plenty of Mabundu who were reticent to accept a woman as their ruler. But these same people weren't exactly thrilled by swearing allegiance to a slave descendant either. The second advantage were her own connections. She had spent a long time during her brother's rule cultivating friendships in important places, and this gave her hideouts and people to support her while she was on the run. And finally, she had her own resourcefulness and intelligence. She understood her country, and understood her enemy, and used that knowledge to her advantage. For example, while on the run, she abandoned many of the slaves she had with her. This had the same effect as a bank robber flinging wads of cash out of the getaway car, as the Portuguese spent so much time rounding up the slaves that they allowed her to escape. As I said, she settled in the far east of the country, and set about making alliances with regional rulers, including the most powerful king in the region, the King of Congo. Although they had surrendered some of their sovereignty to the Portuguese, the Congolese were still independent, and were worried that what happened to Njinga could happen to them. 
So they sent her supplies and support, which lent her greater legitimacy. And while few powerful Mabundus backed her publicly, many did so on the sly. They hated Hari, seeing him rightly as a Portuguese puppet who was allowing Christians to come in to try and destroy their native religion and way of life. The Portuguese equally didn't help their man by interfering in the slave trade by giving Europeans special perks and power of regulation, and by openly treating him like a stooge by not letting him make any decision without the presence of a Portuguese official. Hari couldn't collect tribute from his vassals, nor could he punish those who defied him, because they were seen as vassals of Portugal, not him. In short, he wore the crown, but had sold its authority to win it. In 1627, Njinga sent emissaries to the Portuguese at Fort Ambaca to offer a compromise. She would accept vassalage to the King of Portugal in return for the crown that was rightly hers. The war was Harry's fault, she said, and if they would only abandon him, then peace could reign. Governor de Souza, though, did not budge. He liked his puppet and would not exchange peace for a less pliable ruler of Ndongo. Moreover, to make his point, de Souza arrested Njinga's emissaries, seized their slaves, and had their leader executed. When Njinga sent people to check on them, they were arrested and sold into slavery in Brazil. De Souza was done messing around. He sent her an ultimatum. Surrender now and be treated fairly as a Christian woman. Continue to fight, and she would never get these terms again. Njinga, though, could not accept these terms. She would not live while some chump wore her crown. So she fought on, concentrating on talking local nobles, or sobers as they were known, into switching sides back to her, which she managed to do in considerable numbers. This was shown in March 1629, when King Harry sent a message to his sobers, ordering them to appear before him, in advance of a major campaign against Njinga. Not one of them showed up. Hari flew into a rage and urged his Portuguese paymasters to go and execute a number of sobers as an example, which they did. But, like the Nanaean Hydra, if you cut off the head of one revolutionary, you tend to create many more. And so it was here. Njinga starts to taunt her enemy, sending him message that she was coming to get him. In a panic, Hari urged Jasuza to send reinforcements to protect him from the, quote, black woman, as he called her. This renewed attack turned into a cat-and-mouse chase, where the Portuguese could not catch Njinga, but left devastation in their wake, leaving many Mabundu to leave the country for the neighbouring kingdom of Matamba. This humiliation further eroded Hari's authority, to the extent that only his inner circle showed him any kind of a respect or allegiance. Even the Portuguese were sick of him, but they had nailed their colours to his mast and were forced to stick with him. That is not to say that there were not close escapes. In late May 1629, she was intercepted by the Portuguese at Nganguela. She was forced to literally run for her life with her troops, crossing a narrow precipice to escape and shimmying down a cliff face. This is the story I told in the intro to this episode. 
where, despite being cornered, she grabbed a vine and climbed down to safety, followed by several hundred of her men. While she did manage to escape, the Portuguese did manage to catch up with her camp, in which her sisters, Kambu and Fungi, and a number of other relatives and advisers were gathered. After a fierce battle, they were captured, making them now political pawns in this brutal game. They were forced to walk naked under armed guard all the way back to the colonial capital of Luanda. The women remained proud and steadfastly loyal to Njinga throughout this entire episode. But when they arrived at the city, the humiliation only increased as they were brought before Governor de Souza. There, sat on his throne, he received his naked captives, forcing them to sit on the floor and listen to how they should be grateful to have been welcomed into the mercy of the Christian God and the King of Portugal. They were then forcibly baptised and faced a long period in captivity while de Souza worked out how best to use them to his advantage. Meanwhile, Njinga, with around a hundred of her best-slash-only men, was trekking through the jungle, managing to negotiate the twin threats of nature and cannibalistic bandits. She eventually made contact with an Imbangala leader, Kasanyi, who did agree to ally with her, but only on the condition that she become his wife. Now, these would seem to be pretty unacceptable terms, no? She had always carefully and jealously protected her power and sovereignty, especially against the men in her life. And now, she would risk it all so easily? But her position was weak. She had won the hearts of most of the people of Ndongo, but the armies of Portugal had thus far proven impossible for her defeat, and the sobers of Ndongo were coming under increasing pressure to abandon her and convert to Christianity. Anyway, she could always just dump him afterwards, right? So, she had no choice. And, listener, she married him. And now, all of the vast resources of the Mbangala were at her disposal. In the summer of 1630, a new governor, Manuel Pereira Coutinho, arrived in Luanda to replace de Souza. His immediate priority was the same as every other European governor in Central Africa. Slaves. Like any economic system, the transatlantic slave trade depended on a regular supply of resource. But the Portuguese were having trouble receiving new slaves from African traders as Njinga and her new Imbangala allies blocked their routes. Slaves were basically the only economic purpose of the Portuguese presence in Central Africa, so blocking this off was an extremely effective strategy. Coutinho planned to get rid of his hapless puppet, King Harry, and replace him with one of Njinga's captured sisters. He hoped that this would be an acceptable compromise for her, who had then released the shackles on the slave trade. Harry, as I have said, had never been respected by the Sobers. The son of a slave would always be looked down on. Indeed, actually, I hadn't said this before, but he had once been a slave himself in the court of Njinga's sister, Fungi. 
and that's before you even consider how he had been imposed upon them by a foreign conqueror. Njinga's sisters, however, were of royal blood. They had that connection to the divine only possessed by the children of kings. This was seemingly proven because a prolonged drought in Luanda was broken when Kambu and Fungi arrived in the capital. Things got so bad for Harry that many Sobers said that not only would they willingly accept either Kambu as Fungi as ruler over him, they would prefer that the whole office of monarch of Ndongo was abolished and all power went to the king of Portugal, rather than have to swear fealty to the son of a slave. However, the church, particularly Jesuit priests, were dead set against this plan, and attempts to get agreement from the Portuguese king also failed. So, the status quo remained in place. But while lethargy reigned in Hari's court, Njinga was putting into motion her own new strategy. Her marriage to an Imbangala warlord was a portal to a new culture, and she seized this opportunity to recast herself in their image. The Imbangala were a nomadic, deeply martial society, steeped in ritualistic human sacrifice and cannibalism. Society was based around membership of wandering warbands, whose leaders were elected from within and then wielded absolute power over their tribe. One of their legendary leaders was a woman called Tembo Ndumbo, who, as part of her initiation, had sacrificed her own son by beating him to death, pounding his corpse into a pulp and slathering herself in... you get it calling it euphemistically holy oil. From then on, every Imbangala warrior was required to do the same, though it could be anyone's holy oil they could use, not necessarily that of their child. So yeah, not the kind of people you'd go out with for a quiet pint. And they wouldn't let you come anyway, because initiation into their ranks was no simple affair, particularly into a leadership role which was, of course, what Njinga aspired to. She wished to combine the image of a Mabundu queen, a Christian diplomat, and a ferocious Mbangala warrior. So, for two years, she underwent intensive Mbangala martial training, which ended in a blood oath ceremony, which required her to drink human blood. Where that blood came from is unclear. She then took one of her male concubine's children and, you know, did the thing I talked about earlier. So yeah, let's not lionise Njinga. She was a badass, but she was also a murderous, unscrupulous and ambitious woman who would stop at nothing to achieve what she saw as her birthright. Then again, I didn't exactly differentiate her from anyone else at the time. Following the example of Tembo Atundumbo, following this initiation, she became essentially degendered. She was not a woman, she was an Imbangala warrior, and they were treated the same irrespective of gender. After this quote unquote confirmation into the new faith, she took a new title Ngola Njinga Ngombe Nga, or, for those of you that don't speak Angolan, Queen Njinga. Master of Arms, and Great Warrior. She then went on the offensive, forming her own warband, or Quilombo, and went on a brutal campaign in Ndongo. She and her men went on a rampage, 
killing, imprisoning, and yes, occasionally consuming anyone in their way, before then turning her crosshairs on the kingdom of Matamba. Now, I'm not entirely sure what Matamba and her queen, Mongo had done to deserve this, but they took a heavy toll throughout a four-year war. Eventually, Njinga took their capital, as well as the queen and her daughter. Now, in Bengala traditions would have her sacrificing and eating the captive queen, but she wouldn't do that. Instead, she banished her from the capital, branded her as a slave, and exiled her to another part of the kingdom, where she soon died. Njinga then took wardship over the ex-queen's daughter, also called Mwango, whom she raised as her own child. By doing this, Njinga was the first Imbangala war leader to conquer a kingdom and rule it in Imbangala style. But, more importantly, it gave her a home base from which she could now harry and raid Ndongo at will. She had won the hearts of her people, but they feared Portuguese reprisals too much than to go wholesale onto her side. But now, as an Imbangala warrior queen who had just conquered a neighbouring kingdom, well, she had fear on her side as well. When news of this got out, it scared the bejesus out of both Governor Coutinho and King Harry. Njinga had been a fierce opponent in the past in the political and strategic sphere, but now that she had recast herself as an Imbangalia warrior queen who was coming to eat their children, yeah, that's not the kind of thing you want to find out. Back in Europe, a new maritime power had emerged, the Dutch Republic, and their navy was now threatening Luanda. This forced Governor Coutinho to spend his time protecting his capital from Europeans, leaving King Harry alone to deal with Njinga and he had no effective way of doing so. Her constant attacks led to him releasing one of her sisters in an attempt to appease her, but, if anything, it only caused her to increase her efforts. Whenever the Portuguese did ride out and forced to attack her, she pulled back and restricted herself to raiding. But, sooner or later, the Dutch would show up, forcing the governor to pull his forces back and allowing Njinga to roll straight back in. In 1639, the Portuguese returned to the negotiating table and received Njinga's ambassadors in Luanda, and this time they didn't even enslave them on their arrival. Njinga released some captives and slaves as a goodwill gesture and reiterated her demand to be treated as the Queen of Ndongo. The party then travelled to Matamba and met with Njinga personally. She put on a spectacular show for the ambassadors, but was firm in her condemnation of the treatment she had been subjected to by the Portuguese. When they demanded that she give up war and reconvert to Christianity, she pointed out that they were as guilty of warmongering as she, and that she'd only gone over to the Ambangala after being shafted by so-called fellow Christians. This, as you might have expected, did go over so well, and negotiations stalled. But this didn't concern her too much, because she was now wooing a brand new ally, the Dutch. In April 1641, an armada of 22 ships carrying 2,000 Dutch soldiers assaulted and took the Portuguese colonial capital of Luanda. Now, on the face of it, the Dutch and Njinga had differing goals. 
and Jinka wants to win her kingdom back. And the Dutch wanted a steady supply of slaves for their own holdings in the Americas. However, those aims could coalesce. And the Dutch also had an alliance with the Kingdom of Congo to the north. If Njinga get in on that alliance as well, then the Portuguese will be caught in a pincer. Moreover, the Dutch hated the Portuguese almost as much as Njinga did. They had fought for 80 years to free themselves from Spanish rule. And while the crowns of Portugal and Spain were now no longer in union, this didn't matter all that much to the Dutch. They hated them all the same. This all meant that the two were quickly able to draw up an alliance, and these Dutch troops promptly turned the tide of the war. Suddenly, Njinga's troops were not automatically outmatched in any engagement. They could occupy land without the threat of immediately having to retreat, and could actually fight pitched battles with a realistic chance of victory. Indeed, in 1644, her troops, with Dutch backing, routed the Portuguese at Umbaca, and while they were not able to take the fort, this was a major psychological blow against the colonial masters. For her part, Njinga also began to walk back some of her rulership's more overtly in Bengala features. She started to present herself in a manner more palatable to both the Mudbundu and her new Dutch allies. She had never been overly keen on the more brutal tactics of the Mbangala, and had never engaged in cannibalism herself. And now she emphasised mercy towards captives with her troops as well, though she wasn't always able to stop them from just doing what they wanted. But forces under her direct command, and don't forget, she was leading them into battle and fighting herself personally, even into her 50s and 60s, were still feared throughout the region for their ferocity, and this worked very much in her favour. And of course, her greatest strength through all of this was her diplomatic and strategic skill, and she used this to great effect in winning Sobers over to her side that had previously declared for Portugal. She also built up a court-in-waiting in her new forward base in Ndongo, with officials and trusted advisers and family members set up in designated positions so that she could fully present herself as a queen. Due to her trade in slaves captured from her enemies, she also had a fairly strong revenue stream. And while much of it went on weapons and supplies for the war effort, she also spent money on her own wardrobe and jewellery, because when it comes to monarchs, appearances count for a great deal. All of this freaked the hell out of the new king of Portugal, John IV, who sent a new governor and reinforcements in 1645 to reverse Njinga's advance. They went to work quickly and won a major victory over one of Njinga's lieutenants. She was so angry about this that when survivors of the attacks reached her court, she had them beheaded, saying they should have died on the battlefield rather than flee. The Portuguese strategy now was to try and engage Njinga in a decisive battle, where they could capture her and kill her. They saw her as the critical linchpin in the grand alliance arrayed against them. Take her out, and it would all fall apart. The two armies clashed and Njinga's main base of operations in Dembos in northern Angola. Njinga had tried to lure the Portuguese into a trap near a bridge, 
but their commander, Borges Maduera, saw through this and launched his own surprise attack on Njinga's camp. She, though, had seen through that as well and had prepared for this assault. The battle took all day and it was a very bloody affair. But eventually the Portuguese managed to break through Njinga's lines and charge towards where she was stationed with her bodyguards. She only just managed to escape, but was forced to leave all of her treasure and possessions behind, not to mention guns and supplies. Oh, and her sister Kambu didn't get out either, so she found herself once again in Portuguese captivity. This was a major defeat, and even though they didn't accomplish their primary aim of capturing Njinga, the Portuguese had done the next best thing and forced her onto the back foot. However, a side effect of that was to bring Njinga and the Dutch close together, and in April 1647, she signed a formal alliance with the Dutch King and the Dutch West India Company, which held as its express aim the destruction of the Portuguese in Central Africa. This was a treaty between equals, where they treated each other as such, and is then very unusual indeed in the history of European colonisation of Africa. Usually, treaties with African countries and kingdoms were very one-sided and rarely respected. So, make no mistake, Njinga was held with a great deal of respect in the courts of Europe. The following year, Njinga led a counterattack along with her Dutch allies. But before they could meet up, her forces ran into a sizable Portuguese force under Borges Madureira. However, they had caught the Europeans completely off guard, routing the Portuguese and killing 3,000 men, including their commander. However, Njinga's forces still had a major weakness. They did not have the weapons to take Portuguese fortifications, and the Dutch were not there in sufficient numbers to help them. This meant that they could not consolidate their victory by taking the nearby Fort Masangano, where Cambu was being held hostage and Njinga wasted a lot of time and men in fruitless assaults. However, in pitched battles, the combined Dutch and Njinga alliance was unstoppable, and they won victory after victory after victory. That is, until another Portuguese armada arrived, this time in Luanda from Rio de Janeiro in 1648. This was the main Dutch port in the region, and the attack was quick and decisive. After just three days, the Dutch governor sued for peace and he sailed away with all of his men. Just like that, Njinga's grand alliance was broken. She had been betrayed again by Europeans and now had to face an emboldened and reinforced Portuguese force alone. And this is there, with Njinga having victory snatched from her, that we will end for this week. Next time, we'll have the final part of her story, as she fights her final battles against the Portuguese, finally winning back her kingdom after decades of war. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.